I thought gangs typically are quite partisan. Like, you really choose your sides and you choose a gang. Not in the Senate, though. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined here in the studio by by my colleague, Sarah Cliff, uh, who is is normally with us. And we have also brought in Dylan Scott, who has not been on the show before, uh, but who, like Sarah, is a, a profound expert knower of healthcare policy. Conveniently, it seemed, frankly, like we'd, we'd maybe blundered by hiring him because the whole Obamacare <laughs> repeal was collapsing. I, I, didn't, like I didn't know what was going to happen. Getting a little the too whole, honest here. The whole the the whole thing Trump economy was a was a catastrophe. But they but they brought it back from the dead. We really need like all the the knowledgeable people uh, that we can find. So so really glad to have you here. We have Ezra on vacation though because apparently the House cannot vote on health care when both Ezra and I are in Washington D.C. Without someone, it was. Frankly, I think the disappointment in his eyes about Paul Ryan, it would have been too much. But when he left town, Ryan was like, you know what? Now's our moment. We're just going to vote on this thing. (laughs) Um, We don't know. Um, No, but so so glad to have you here, Dylan. And I was really hoping there was this like incredible flurry of activity last week. Um, A new amendment was come out. Then the amendment itself was amended. There was like a mad scramble for votes, um, an hour of floor debate. It it all went through. And and I think in the coverage of like what's new, it's been easy to sort of lose sight of like broadly speaking, like what does this bill do, right? And my obsession is it has a big tax cut, about $600 billion. Um, And so you do that and then you need to like – pair back elsewhere. And and one big place it, it pairs back, right, is in uh, Medicaid. Um, and, like, uh, can, can you tell us about, like, what what does it do into Medicaid? Sure. So it does two things in the Medicaid space. First, Obamacare expanded the Medicaid program to cover all poor adults up to a certain income level, and millions of people have been covered that way. And so what the Republican bill would do is start to phase out that expansion. It would cap enrollment, and then as people started to fall off of the Medicaid expansion roles, they would not be able to come back onto the program. So over the next 10 years, it would phase out the expansion of Medicaid that Obamacare instituted. But the other piece of it is that it would actually totally overhaul the way that the Medicaid program is funded, and Medicaid covers about 70 million people. It's the single biggest health insurance program in the country, and it's targeted to you know the most vulnerable Americans, low-income people, pregnant women, those kind of folks. And so what it would do is it would institute a spending cap on the program for the first time. Right now, the federal government and states jointly fund the program, and they pay basically whatever is necessary for whoever qualifies for the program. And what the Republican bill would do is it would institute a spending cap. The federal federal government would contribute a set amount of money um, for each person enrolled in the program. And beyond that, it would be on the states to cover any additional costs. And so what the Congressional Budget Office has said is that would lead to $800 billion uh, in Medicaid spending cuts over the next decade and about 14 million fewer people being covered by the program. Over so the when, time. when I first heard about the per capita caps, I I thought it was really crazy. And it's, it's worth clarifying. It's not quite as crazy as 
as what I had thought. The, the the legislation is aware that like different kinds of people right. are different, right? So it's not just like, you know, you get X thousand dollars per person and and we don't care if that's like right because you have like a lot of disabled people on Medicaid, you have healthy adult a lot of healthy adults now on Medicaid. So it basically does caps for four separate categories. I think they are it's um able-bodied adults, children, disabled and elderly. Elderly. Elderly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Because Medicaid itself right. has a, become a bit of a weird grab bag program, yes. right? So it's like, it, particularly pre-expansion, it's sort of like sympathy cases. So yes. it's very generous to poor kids. And poor pregnant to an, women. And to an extent to pregnant women, but not that generous to poor adults. But then if you're disabled or if you're old and you need nursing homes, it gets you back in rather than a – it's not like a single clear concept of like who is the Medicaid patient. Right. And so the per capita grants also differentiate that way. Right. So so they do differentiate between those people. But at the same time, like it's a huge cut, like an $800 billion cut to Medicaid is just massive. And it's through the expansion. It is through both other people on Medicaid – Right now, and like Dylan was saying, that's 14 million people less who would have health insurance who have it right now. It's like a really stunning rollback of benefits. And, and, it, and it means that when when this – if this was fully implemented, you would wind up not just with lower Medicaid coverage than you have today, but with lower Medicaid coverage than you had before. Probably. Before um, yeah, I'd have to look at the CBO numbers, but – that sounds quite plausible. Yeah, I think about 12 million people have been covered by Medicaid expansion through Obamacare. And so if you take that against 14 million fewer people being covered right. in 10 years, then yeah, and like, it would be a so net loss. One of the ways this will get defended by Republican legislators, they'll say, yes, we're ending the Medicaid expansion, but those people can get tax credits to buy private insurance. But that doesn't actually seem like a great scenario for these people anyways, because the tax credits are not going to be nearly as adjusted by income as they were under the Affordable Care Act. So you'll get this, like, um, it depends on how old you are, but a tax credit for, you know, a few thousand dollars, which is generally not going to be enough to afford coverage. So, you know, that's where you hear things like these people who have access to health insurance, like they will get a tax credit of some amount, but it also might still prove very difficult for them to actually purchase a health insurance policy. Right, right. So 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 closing closing the books on on Medicaid. The the other thing the Affordable Care Act did was it famously it established the exchanges. You go on the exchange, you buy a health care plan. If you make less than four hundred percent of the federal poverty line, you get uh financial assistance from the government. And that assistance is scaled to two things, right? It's it's based on your financial hardship. So it's mm -hmm. scaled to your income and it's scaled to what the premiums are where you live. So if you're – we've written a lot about uh, counties where there's only one insurer. Obviously, you put the premiums up high if you're a monopolist. But at least if you are low income, the Affordable Care Act cushions you. Against that kind of stuff. Right. It basically and, says and, and you only have to pay a certain percent of your income. Right. So the, the actual premium is meaningless and, to you. And, and so ACA, it continues to provide tax credits, but it scraps that need-based concept. And geography-based concept, right? right? So like if you – like the place that gets screwed the hardest by ACA is arguably Alaska – because you have this area that it's just really expensive to dis deliver health insurance in Alaska. 
you need helicopters. You it's hard to get around. It's you have to pay doctors a lot of money to work there because a lot of them just don't want to move to Alaska. So the premiums are incredibly high there. But if you're you know someone who is earning two hundred percent of the poverty line, which is like um, twenty six thousand dollars you're getting a subsidy that guarantees you don't have to pay more than 6% of your income on health on health insurance premium. So like the fact that I'm pretty sure policies are like somewhere in the like $18,000 a year range in Alaska, but it's essentially like a meaningless number to someone who is getting a subsidy. Um, under the um, bill that the House just passed, there's no adjustment for geography. So like the person in Alaska doesn't get more help than the person in New York, even though in New York, you know, you have this high density of doctors and premiums tend to be quite low because, you know, you don't have to use helicopters to get around. And um, so, so you would get the same tax credit regardless of how much you earn or um, where you live. Yeah. Um, there were there are some slight adjustments. If you earn more than $75,000 a year, your tax credit starts to um, go down a little bit. But it's still under $75,000 a year, everyone under that threshold is treated exactly the same, even though you have a lot of income variation. Yeah, the differences are really stunning, too. I was looking at up estimates yesterday that said somebody, a 60-year-old making $20,000 a year in Mobile, Alabama, currently receives about $13,000 in a subsidy through Obamacare. And under the Republican plan, they would get a $4,000 subsidy. So that's the huge gap and the huge loss of assistance that people are looking at. And at, at the same time, it allows insurers to increase the the premiums on older people. Yes, right. The the, the unsubsidized premiums, and so so under under Obamacare, it's a it's a three to one ratio, right? For your your young I, I, Tom Price tried to tweak that as we've discussed here to three point four nine to one. Um, but so they're bumping it up to to five to one. So they are. You know, creating a, a situation which premiums for for older, low income people are going to be a lot higher, and they're no longer going to be receiving that kind of uh, that kind of guarantee. And the the demographics of it are funny, right? I mean, if you didn't read the bill, you would just like think, well, maybe Republicans would want to change this to help out older people and people living in more rural areas because that's their constituency. But they've done just just the opposite, right? I mean, if you are like a 28-year-old living in a big coastal city making, you know, not like crazy money, but like you're doing okay, Affordable Care wasn't really doing much for you, um, except it it created an exchange in which you could go and like pay the market price. Um, but, but ACA will give you a, a nice subsidy that you don't necessarily need, but would, I'm sure, like to have. It's striking to me how harsh it is on rural areas, um, just because the politics of that are funny to me. It, 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 like, it happens to be the case that it is challenging to deliver robust healthcare services in low population density areas. Um, there are a lot of things that make rural areas different from big cities, Normally, you would think that the politicians who represent those rural areas would try to be sensitive to that and do something. And and this law, it really doesn't do that. But couldn't you say, like, I mean, this has always been, like, a tension and, like, the weirdness of healthcare politics in the U.S. Because you could say the same thing about Democrats passing this law earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they passed a law that's mostly going to help 
Republican voters. Like, they did not pass. And I guess, I I mean, it's true. I I mean, it is weird if you think about, like, who were Obama's voters versus who does Obamacare help. But years ago, if I had been trying to explain to someone, like, why does this bill um, do so much to help people in in rural areas, I would be saying, you know, Max Baucus from Montana was one of the lead drafters of it, that they were very cognizant of the fact that they had somehow elected a Democratic senator from Alaska and, like, desperately needed him to help them pass legislation. You know, so there were there was like stuff going on, I think, that explained it. Whereas there's no quirk here where like the key committee member uh, happens to be from Manhattan or something. Um, there is one House Republican from New York City representing Staten Island. Uh, he is not voting for this bill because the bill also contains a weird provision like designed to completely destroy his district for... <laughs> obscure New York state politics reasons. There's a mirror image to it, but I feel like this is weirder. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It's weirder. But at the same time, I mean, you have someone like Nancy Pelosi, like working on this bill. You do have a lot of Democrats from urban areas who worked on a bill that arguably made health insurance more expensive for the type of people they represent who buy in the marketplace and made it less expensive for the people who buy, who live in these rural areas typically. And you saw that also in the way the Medicaid expansion worked. Oh, yeah, 100%. California already had a generous Medicaid program and and didn't get much. But like previously stingy states like Arizona got this like huge Medicaid windfall. Right. Like I think Jim Tinkersley, our colleague, has a piece up today. Like the Affordable Care Act was a huge transfer of wealth from like higher income voters who again, like, tend to vote Republican towards some really low-income voters. And then, you know, you see the exact opposite thing happening right. here. Um, okay, so so that's the exchanges, right? You get higher premiums, uh, different structure of subsidies. Okay, and one other weird thing yeah. on the exchanges, since you were talking about the age rating and this 5 to 1. So one of the things I find really bizarre about the structure of the tax credits, so you have 5 to 1 age rating. The oldest enrollee, the 64-year-old, can be charged five times as much as the youngest enrollee, the, like, 21 or 18-year-old. One of the weird things about the tax credits, though, is they don't scale five to one. So, like, old people are getting hit twice. Not only are they able to be charged more, I think the tax credits only scale, like, three to one or four to one. So, like, they are getting a less generous tax credit compared to the underlying premium, which is just an— Odd. It's yeah, just going to make it so yeah. expensive if you're older to buy coverage. I think it's, it's worth dwelling on this because it it's indicative of, I, I would say, the sloppiness with which this was put together, right? There's two different things, two different changes they made with regard to age. One was that they made the subsidies based on age, right? Which you would do, you could give everyone a flat subsidy, but they wanted to give higher subsidies to older people presumably because they're trying to protect older people's interests. But then with the other hand, they've raised premiums on older people. So it's not, if you had like workshopped this in a normal way, I think you would have written down like four or five different combinations of those numbers and like had analysts run them different ways and tried to see what the consequences were. Here they just seem to have... I don't know what. They just like threw some stuff at the screen and it's you're giving older people more money, but they're worse off. Yeah, this is a this I don't is a think bill, you would want. This is a bill like at war with itself in a lot of ways, I think. And we've seen that in the final tweaks that were made here in the last couple of weeks to actually get it across the finish line. So, OK, so let's talk about those tweaks. Right. 
So then that was what we just described as basically original ACA. And I'd say if you like you want to understand it, like the big deal is a lot of people lose health insurance. Like that is the headline here. It right. cuts a lot of money from the health insurance expansion. We don't have a CBO score yet, but it's probably somewhere in the like 20 to 24 million range of people losing health insurance. Like that's the big overall headline to take from what and, happened. And, and, that's, and that's why I started there, because I think I think the parts that didn't change are the most significant ones, right? You still have the big tax cut. You still have the big Medicaid cut. You still have a reworking of the subsidies that is going to be very bad for older, poorer, more rural, sicker people. But Tom MacArthur came in with a a twist on this, which is that states are going to be allowed to waive regulations. Right. So, yeah, Tom MacArthur, who is a New Jersey Republican who belongs to the the moderate wing of the party, has been negotiating for the last month with the conservative House Freedom Caucus, which opposed the original version of the bill because they didn't think it did enough to roll back Obama's Obamacare's insurance regulations. And so, yeah, what they came up with was this agreement that states would, rather than rolling back those protections nationwide, states would be allowed to choose if they wanted to pursue a waiver for some of the Obamacare rules, including the rules that uh, prevented insurers from charging people more by, based on their health status and that required insurers to provide this comprehensive self, sense, uh, set of benefits. And so that ended up being enough to win over the conservative side of things. They endorsed the bill last last week, which brought you know almost a two dozen votes into the into the yes camp. But that obviously spooked a lot of moderates because now they were open to the attack that they were undermining Obama, uh, undermining Obamacare's protection. And so people. what, like, what does that mean? Like, thinking about the waivers, you know, being being put in, like, wh- what does that, what does that get you? Like, wh- what does that solve and, or, or hurt? Well, I think it's actually helpful just to think about, like, how the market will work differently. Because I think, um, you know, people with pre-existing conditions will be treated differently, but not to the extent they were under the marketplace before. So the scenario they allow for in these waiver states is that, you know, if you keep continuous coverage, if you go from your job to individual market to Medicaid, you know, any continuous one to the other, you cannot be underwritten. You cannot be charged more for your um, health insurance. It's only those people who have a break in coverage. But so isn't that how it's been since the kennedy Casabom law from the mid-90s? Under HIPAA? Yeah. My understanding was that you could do underwriting in between when you transition to individual, but maybe that's wrong. Oh, if you transitioned out of group and into out individual? Out of group into individual. Oh, I see. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. But th- what they're saying is if you keep this continuous coverage, then you should be fine. Okay. Um, it's if you have that break in coverage. I think it's, you're right. If you go from group to group, like, that's not... And that won't be a problem under this bill either. Group okay. plans are not going to be underwriting. It's someone who shows up without coverage to the marketplace, and then the insurance company can upcharge them for the pre-existing condition for one year, um, which is kind of like, I mean, this is something like Dylan has written a little bit about, but it's like a weird provision that's going to keep some people out of the marketplace that, you know, might be, um, it'll be interesting to see how insurers treat it. Like they want to get in cheaper people. Um, so it's unclear if they're going to underwrite things like, um, I don't know, like smaller issues, like something you don't think would be very expensive, like acne or something like that. Um, so those are the people who would be affected, but still significant. And it's like still very, very different from the insurance, the insurance rules that we have right now. Um, and I think for the Freedom Caucus, you know, this has kind of been their non-negotiable from day one. Like they 
want to deregulate the insurance market. Um, I think the change that could actually be a lot more meaningful is the end of the essential health benefits requirement, which really overhauled the insurance market. This will be important for things that are generally expensive, the things that insurance carriers in the individual market usually didn't cover before Obamacare. Like a good example of this one is maternity care, which was covered by 12% of individual market plans before the mandate that they had to cover it. Um, a lot of like specialty prescription drugs could fall into this category. Uh, mental health services, substance abuse services, those are another one insurance companies like aren't hugely enthused to cover. So I think that's actually a much easier way for sick people to get disadvantaged by this law is the insurance company can just say, well, we don't cover that. Like, we're not going to charge you more, but like, we're not going to cover your pregnancy or like, we're not going to cover your like psychiatric visits. And like, that's actually, I think the the bigger threat than underwriting is just saying we don't cover those benefits anymore. Yeah. I think in general, essential health benefits have kind of been the unheralded hero of Obamacare <laughs> by requiring insurance plans to offer the same set of services to everybody. It prevented them from tweaking their benefits package to only bring in healthy people this way, you know, you had to provide a comprehensive set of um, services that both healthy and sick people are going to need. But, but the, I mean, and this is an area where you have a real clash of, of visions that isn't just about dollars and cents, I think, that that there's a conservative view that a government, that a health insurance product should be really a kind of, um, well, like an insurance product, right? That it it will safeguard your financial interests against weird, unpredictable outlier events, right? You get hit by a bus or you come down with some rare exotic disease and you need it. Whereas most people who have employer-provided insurance, if you talk about someone it's like, he's got a good job with a good health insurance package, wh- what that means is that you receive a comprehensive set of medical services, most of which are routine. Like you go to the doctor. You, I mean, not that being pregnant and having a child is is like a banal event, but it's 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 not like a crazy risk, right? Like it's it's predictable. Uh, it's it's a thing that that people know about. But like our insurance, that like good health insurance in America covers that stuff, and like national health insurance programs in foreign countries, they cover that stuff because that's like that's like the the daily give and take of the healthcare system, and Obamacare tried to make that a reality for people on the individual marketplace, right? That you were going to go and you were going to have a plan that was going to be comparable to a large group plan in terms of, you know, like doing it all. And these waivers would really undo that. Yes. Um, Yeah, you know, the analogy I've had like some more conservative health analysts use with me is they compare it to auto insurance, which like is not going to cover your oil change or your, you know, basic car maintenance. It's like when you get into a car accident, like that is when it kicks in. And that is kind of like the Freedom Caucus um, vision for what healthcare should look like. Like it should be much more about financial security than actually providing healthcare. It's about preventing medical bankruptcy. But, you know, pretty easy to go bankrupt from like a lot of things that just because healthcare costs so much in the US like right. pregnancy what i think it like a regular delivery is around $18,000 right now like that could put a lot of people underwater um, well I, I think a a problem with this vision is that one of the things we rely on 
health insurance companies to do in the United States is to act as our um, bargaining agents, right? So it's like health insurance doesn't just provide a pure risk pooling and reimbursement service. It's like they actually pay at a lower rate to the providers that you would have to pay if you just showed up right. and you were like, hey, Mr. Doctor. Like they're getting you- the discount oil change. Like we're mm-hmm. like, they would charge you if you showed up with your car a hundred bucks. Like they'll charge you if you show up with your insurance, like the $30 version. Right. And, the same thing. And I think you could make the case that if like, if the conservative vision, because the, the conservative vision here isn't that like, six million people on some health exchange somewhere should have catastrophic plans. Like the vision is that everybody should, that, you know, Medicare should be reworked to be like this, blah, blah, blah. This bill doesn't do that, but but that's like the theory. Right. And it's possible that if you did that, that it would work and prices would fall. But what's not possible is that you get this like small, vulnerable segment of the population. You cut them off from the group discount rate. And then miraculously, this like handful of relatively low income tenuous people are going to like reshape the health insurance market, right? That's, that to me is like the real sort of, they're making an example out of a tiny number of people because they have this vision that they can't impose on the overall healthcare system. So it's like, you go get a catastrophic plan, but it doesn't, but it doesn't work. Like the pricing at the hospitals and doctor's offices is is not actually geared to that kind of thing. Well, the other thing I think shouldn't be underappreciated is the idea of catastrophic coverage, I think, directly clashes with what most Americans say they want, which is to pay less for health care. Like the polling is pretty overwhelming on that front, even among, you know, a big segment of Republicans. And so that is completely counter to the idea that you're mostly going to pay out of your pocket for health care, except in these emergency circumstances. What's the secret to a well-groomed guy? The art of shaving is the secret. It's founded in, in New York in 1996, and they've been helping guys look their best for, for over 20 years. Uh, you shave, at least I shave, a bunch uh, every week, multiple times, and it's nice to have really nice stuff to do it with. And that's what the Art of Shave offers you. They've got a total routine covered, whether shaving, uh, beer maintenance, uh, that's what I use, uh, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Uh, the four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. They've got a, a pre-shave oil that you can start with, then a thick, foamy lather with their shaving cream applied with a shave brush, then you can replenish moisture with an aftershave balm. And you finish off the perfect shave with one of their five new fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products without ever having to worry. Our listeners will get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code WEEDS. To get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com, use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer, or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations near you. So can we move on? There's a politics question I've been thinking around on healthcare that I wanted to bounce off you guys and get your thoughts on. So one of the things that surprised me about the vote yesterday is that, you know, the House voted for a bill that is just opposed opposed or not endorsed by basically every healthcare lobby in the, in the U.S. The American Hospital Association opposes it, the American Medical Association, basically any sort of 
doctor group that has issued a statement so far has been negative. The health insurance industry has not gone on the record opposing it, but has been quite critical. Um, And you have individual insurance companies like the Blue Shield plan out in California have gone on the record to say they oppose this bill. You know, going into this debate and going into the, you know, when I think back to the Affordable Care Act debate, one of the things that the Obama administration felt like was very, very important was having all the health industries on board. Like they needed all those people backing it because they'd seen Clinton Care and they'd seen the pharma ads. And they felt like if you don't get those interests on on board first, it's kind of a non-starter. And one thing that surprised me is how little influence these groups have had um, in this process, that it doesn't seem like they were consulted. Um, Noam Levy and the LA Times had a really good story about all these health groups saying they were essentially shut out of the process. They weren't consulted. They went on the record opposing it or didn't support it. And, you know, yet it still passes. And, you know, one thing I've been trying to think through since yesterday is like, why was it able to succeed? Like, and are there things that are shifting in American politics that are going to make these voices less important to legislators? So I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on that. I think they decided for whatever, I don't know why, but like they oppose this bill, but they're also totally taking a dive on it. I mean, we know what it looks like Mm -hmm. when powerful lobby groups are not opposed to something, but trying to defeat it. And like, there is no sign here that they are trying to defeat it. The American Medical Association did not organize an event in which doctors wearing white coats come up to Capitol Hill and hold little signs and yell at Republicans. The insurance industry did not put Harry and Louise type ads up on the air to attack these things. Um, You did not have like the heads of hospital associations appearing on Meet the Press to yell at Republican members Which of is, Congress. like, weird when it's such a giant Medicaid cut. Like, do you read it I, as, like, fear of, I, like, the I, Trump I, administration? I or, like, I, what's I going on there? I don't know why they are so lackadaisical about it. I mean, I will say something I, I know frequently frustrated the Obama administration is that um, one thing that would sometimes happen uh during various, like, conflicts between, uh, you know, the the White House and and House Republicans over uh, fiscal policy is that House Republicans would threaten to default on the national debt, destroy the value of the American currency, ruin the global financial system, plunge the world economy into, like, a years-long depression in which millions of people lose their jobs, like, utter, complete catastrophe. And if you asked the Chamber of Commerce about this, if you phoned them up and you were like, do you agree with the House Republican plan to destroy the world economy? They would say very clearly, no, we do not. We do not agree with that plan. On the other hand, the Obama administration would sometimes try to raise taxes on high-income people. In that case, you wouldn't need to call the Chamber of Commerce to ask them if they oppose that. They would tell you mm-hmm. constantly and they would bankroll huge multi-million dollar ad campaigns. And 
if there was a senator like Angus King in Maine, they didn't want him to be senator because they disagreed with him on taxes. But they didn't run ads saying Angus King is too mean to rich people because there aren't a lot of rich people in Maine. They dug through his record and they found stuff that they thought would be politically vulnerable and they hit him on that because they they really cared, right? And to me, the healthcare groups, it's, it's the same. Like, I just think like a, a lot of business groups are comfortable with the Republican Party being in office and tries to, like, tell them what they would like them to do. And if they don't do it, they say, mm, you know, I, I wish I wish you hadn't done that. But when Democratic administrations try to do things that they don't like, they they fight. And like, I've just I've seen no sign that that any kind of business organization actually wants to fight with the Republican Party about anything. That's interesting. I don't. I, I. I think that could very well be true. I. I do wonder how much of this is a byproduct of the Obamacare debate too. So I've written a lot about the drug industry in the past, and obviously pharma coming on board with Obamacare was a big deal in terms of getting it across the finish line. And as Trump has been coming into power, I've talked to people about you know. What's the relationship like now between the drug industry and the Republican Party? And a lot of people will point back to, well, it hasn't really been the same since the industry got on board with Obamacare and endorsed this huge Democratic legislative achievement. And so I just wonder if there's been a little bit of severance between the Republicans and people who would ordinarily, to Matt's point, kind of be their business allies because of the kind of toxic politics of Obamacare. Yeah, it's just weird to me. You don't see like, like, hospitals are going to lose so much money if this bill passes. And like, you're right, they've like put out their statements, but they were not up there in their white coats yesterday. And maybe, I mean, I am curious if this changes, and this probably like actually brings us to the next thing we want to talk about as the Senate, if like actually they felt like, you know, like why get in a fight with Republicans over a bill we don't think is going to pass when we're going to have to deal with them on like boring, less political issues about like Medicare reimbursement rates and like, other things that are not going to make the front pages, but, like, they care a lot about. And perhaps they are saving, like, the real big protests for the future. But I I think that could also end up being a political mistake, as it feels like the bill is now gaining a bit of momentum going into the Senate with, like, no Republican wanting to be the one to say, like, well, I, I we didn't repeal it, and, you know, it stopped with us. So it's just, it's weird to me that you don't see industry protesting like a trillion dollar cut to healthcare. I also feel like industry groups are underplaying the extent to which if anything resembling this passes, it's going to alter the trajectory of healthcare politics sort of going forward, right? So one reason House Democrats never put forward a like alternate framework or like, here's our Obamacare improvements, is that Nancy Pelosi has been trying to get her backbench members to like not just go for a full tilt Medicare for all kind of bill. But that's what they want to do. Like that's what they've wanted since at least the mid 1940s. And they were convinced by the Obama administration and and others to put that aside and like go in this other kind of direction. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders showed in his primary campaign that there is like a large appetite among the Democratic base for a big push for Medicare for all, even in circumstances where it looked like we were maybe close to a a more market-friendly solution. If you burn down the 
progress the Obama administration made in covering people through an industry-friendly mechanism, uh, that center is not going to hold. You know, the the Democrats who right now, right now it's the, the vast preponderance of Democrats in the leadership, they are like not on the single-payer bus. They are like make Obamacare work, blah, blah, blah. If it goes away, though, they're not going to have a leg to stand on. And that's going to put, you know, doctors and hospitals in a position they're really not happy with, right? They don't really don't want to be squeezed between a Republican Party that doesn't want to spend any money on giving people health care and a Democratic Party that wants to um, subject them all to price controls. Um, they are actually like they are living in the sweet spot like right now and don't seem to quite appreciate like the good deal that they have. And they are they're being really lackadaisical about it. I mean, I guess they think they can get a better deal from Senate Republicans, right? That that something will pass that is like not like this bill, but that gets rid of there's a lot of stuff in Obamacare that they don't love and that maybe they're going to work something out there, but it's it's hard to see what. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we talk about the Senate then? And maybe Dylan like you should give us the lay of the land. Yeah, like, what's up the in the pol- Senate? What's 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 do we have a gang? We do have a gang. We have uh, twelve senators who are in this working group that are going to work on a n- totally new health care bill. The Senate has been pretty transparent that they're going to write their own bill, and the House bill, you know, they'll take it under advisement, I guess. But that's as far as it goes. And this group of senators kind of spans the whole length of the Senate Republican Conference, from your hardline conservatives like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, all the way over to more moderate members like Rob Portman of Ohio and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. And then you've obviously got leadership involved like um, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, who chairs the the health committee, and Orrin Hatch of Utah, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee. So this group is, I think they've only met a couple of times, but they're getting started on writing a new bill. And it's interesting, sort of the presumption is that they're going to fix everything that we've been talking about that's wrong with the House bill, or at least try to mitigate a lot of its damage. So on the Medicaid side, a lot of these Republican senators represent states that expanded Medicaid under Obamacare. And so we don't know how yet, but they're supposedly working on a plan to kind of smooth this out or or rework that piece of the bill. They're working on an amendment um, that would change the financial assistance that people receive to buy private health insurance to take into account more people's income, as we were talking about before. So I don't think we have a clear sense yet of what it's going to end up looking like, but they're they're working on Medicaid. They're working on the private insurance side. There's some senators in here. We haven't talked about Planet Planned Parenthood at all, but obviously the House bill defunds Planned Parenthood, and there are several senators for whom that's a big problem. Um, so it's sort of like the simplest way to think about it is all the all the terrible things that we've heard about the House bill, at least ostensibly, that's what the Senate is going to work on fixing here in the next couple of weeks. And you could, in theory, just like dial everything down, right? Like you could cut Medicaid, but like a lot less. Right. And you could reduce the subsidies, but reduce them a lot less. And then you could cut taxes, but cut taxes a lot less. It would... I mean, it it would be funny if this ended up like in a boring place where like repealing and replacing Obamacare meant making it a little bit less generous in 12 different ways and cutting taxes a little bit, which that would almost be kind of like refreshing normal politics, right? If like when Democrats took over, it got more generous. And then when Republicans took over, it got stingier. But you didn't have these like apocalyptic like 
clashing moral visions. But you don't, that's not what Senate Republicans are saying exactly. It's, it, that's what's a little confusing to me, right? Is that they keep saying they're going to like, well, we're going to soften this. We're going to soften that. We're going to soften that. We're going to take care of that. But they're not really lowering expectations, right? They're not telling people, yeah, actually, we're not going to repeal Obamacare. We're just going to do some budget tweaks. And it it makes me wonder. I mean, it, it makes me wonder how much they were just sort of didn't think the House was going to pass a bill. And so they didn't really need to worry about it. Well, they've been pretty, you know, like Bob Corker said yesterday that he had just kind of tuned out. Who's a senator from Tennessee? He just said he had tuned out of what the House Republican health care debate had been. Um, so it was that, like the wrong approach. <laughs> but that they've been, you know, a lot of them have been saying things like that. And like I said, this working group that's apparently going to write a whole new bill has met twice. So there's <laughs> a there's a long way to go. And um, and yeah, I, I think you know I was asking around Senate with senators, especially some of the more on the fence ones earlier this week, and it's abundantly clear that they don't they don't know yet what kind of comprehensive plan could actually get all of them to vote for it. Well, and one thing I think is interesting are some of the people who aren't included in the working group. So Senator Collins um, from Maine, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, two who have been like really critical of the House bill. And I mean, I don't know if it's reading tea leaves too much to suggest like they're kind of being we can't write both of them off, right? Like you need one of them. No, yeah, they can lose three. You can lose three? Okay. Oh, they can, they lose, can lose two. two. So you and can, then Mike Pence can do it. Oh, okay. So I mean, it, but that's still like a tough situation. Cassidy, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana is another member who's been really interested. It seems like he was super snubbed by this working group. He's been talking about right. healthcare all the time and then was like not included in the gang or working group, whatever you well, want to call it. I, I do think so the the house precedent here is clear and it it reflects like Republican thinking about legislating rather than Democrat thinking. But like all Republicans have agreed that they want to repeal Obamacare, quote unquote. So then if you can make a deal that encompasses Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, but like also Rob Portman and like Bob Corker, just like, you know, like a blend of like conservative fire breathers and like conservatives who people don't think are idiots. Then you have a bill where, OK, this is the bill. This is what Obamacare repeal is. And now you have like three or four or five moderate Republicans who may vote for it or may not. But you framed the issue. So that, like, either there will be Obamacare repeal, which everyone has said they want to do, or there won't be, in which case the Republican Party has failed in an embarrassing way and everybody will point and laugh at them. And something that you saw in the House was that there were a ton of vulnerable Republicans, moderates, thoughtful people, all kinds of people who had all kinds of problems with this bill, as long as there were 20 Freedom Caucus defectors. Because it was like, it seemed like the bill wasn't going to pass. So everybody was like, yeah, I totally agree. It shouldn't <laughs> fuck over Alaska, right? Like, we need to do more to protect people with pre-existing conditions. But once the Freedom Caucus was on board, nobody from that more moderate school wanted to say, I'm going to be the guy who sinks the bill. Yeah, And that's very different from, like, the blue dog approach, right? When when Dodd-Frank was going through, the blue dog Democrats got together and they said, 
I don't know why this is what they came up with, but they said that like the hill they were going to die on was that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was not going to regulate auto loans. That like either there was going to be no regulatory response to the financial crisis or else they were going to get their way on this stupid issue. And you could imagine it flipping, right? You could imagine like Obama going nuclear. I mean, seriously? Mm -hmm. You guys are going to be the reason that there is no regulatory response at all. But but that's not how Democrats work, right? Instead, it was the other way. Like, Obama went back to the liberals, and he was like, guys, we're not going to sink this whole thing over this fucking auto dealers. So the Blue Dogs got their way. And the modern Republicans, they don't, they don't work like that. Like, even today, like, there's no gang of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Bill Cassidy and, you know, where she, like, gets to five and they, like, swear a blood oath to each other and put down their demands. They're just kind of, like, out there. They're like, I have a lot of objections. And, and like, butter Republicans get rolled all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, they got completely rolled. And, like, <laughs> like, one of the crazy things about this is that the moderates— opposed a bill that was less conservative and voted for a bill that was much more conservative, which is just, like, crazy town. Like, like they got right. totally, like, they, and, but I think the moderates are in, like, a difficult position here because I think one of the things, like, Dylan and I have talked about a lot is that it's not clear, like, what exactly they want. From all appearances, I can tell they might just want to keep Obamacare, but they know they can't say that because they're, you know, not allowed to say, like, actually Obamacare is fine, and I'd be, like, good with some... Tweaks. So I think one of the things I was really telling in this whole debate is the Tuesday, or the Freedom Caucus, the the right wing was always super clear in their demands. Like, and their right. demands were not popular. It was like, we want to bring back pre-existing conditions. We want to end essential health benefits. And they would like say this again and again. And they were like, those are the two lines in the sand. The Tuesday group, you know, they would like mention some things here and there, but there's never like, here's the thing you need to get us on board. And it seems like because you didn't really need a thing to get them on board. Like, they were willing to put aside, like, whatever their qualms were about the first bill and watch them get worse and then vote for the second bill. It'll be interesting to see if the same dynamic plays out in the Senate. I I think it might not because I think the moderates are actually much more clear in the Senate about what they want. They don't want such big Medicaid cuts. Um, You know, they're worried about Medicaid expansion. But... I think you're totally right. Like, it is unclear. You know, if I am Speaker Ryan at this point, like, I think the Freedom Caucus is like a force to be reckoned with. And the Tuesday group is like a group that will come around eventually and like doesn't really have much clout. Yeah, I think it was telling how like what won over the last few moderate votes. It was this $8 billion uh, to help people who might see increased cost under the Republican bill. Again, like a problem that the Republican bill created, and then they threw a couple extra billion dollars to solve um, that experts and even like the lawmakers themselves say they don't know if it's actually enough to accomplish what they say it wants to accomplish. But that got a handful of votes. There was a Florida congressman who got, you know, a commitment in quotes um, from House leaders in the White House to work on this one issue with Medicaid and uh, funding for nursing homes. And there was another, maybe the most most perplexing thing was there was a statement from a Nevada congressman who had been a, a no vote almost the entire time and ended up voting yes at the last minute. And if you really parsed his statement, it was just his, his issue had been Medicaid and his statement was basically, well, I finally read the bill and decided that actually I'm okay with it. <laughs> I, I think it, it's not about healthcare, but but uh, I, Jeffrey Cabaservice uh, wrote a book called called Rule and Ruin uh, several years ago. And it was about moderate Republicans as a thing um, and as like a, 
a historical process. He he really focuses a lot on the Eisenhower years and the 60s and the battles around Barry Goldwater. And and what's interesting is that this has like always been the problem of moderate Republicans. Like it has always been in many ways a political sweet spot. Like you see today, the moderate Republican governors of Massachusetts and Maryland are super popular. Um, people, people like the idea of uh, there's a uh, Tory men and Whig measures, you know, like people who like affiliate with the sociocultural majority and who like affiliate with businessmen and the business community, but who then are a little soft and a little sensitive and a little caring and a little practical and not like these like crazies, right? It's it's always a good, it's like a good place to be, but the people in that niche have never managed to define like what does that mean exactly in the way that you have had new democrats right it, it is a like a real going concern that people understand and who have a distinct donor base and who have institutions where they formulate real agendas instead you kind of have like here's john Kasich, and he'll like go on tv sometimes and people will be like oh he does seem more sensible and uh ever susan collins like people love her in maine like she's wildly popular but they don't they don't like effectively draw lines or have a philosophy or in the case of healthcare right they they don't have a a vision they don't want to say oh healthcare is a right not a privilege and the government needs to get cuz like that's the left view um they look at the details of right wing proposals like uh that maybe goes too far but it's it's hard to be people who really really know what they want. And it, it makes me wonder about, you know, this Senate process in the end where it seems like they'd be big roadblocks, um, but they may not be if they can actually get something together. Yeah. it's. I mean, the, I do think the dynamic is different in the Senate to Sarah's point that over there in the Senate, it seems like the conservative demands like from Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and Mike Lee are a little more amorphous, whereas the moderate senators have been pretty clear, you know, the Medicaid cuts are unacceptable. We can't defund Planned Parenthood. We need to fix the tax credit. So it may end up playing out the same way, but I do think at least kind of here at the starting point, those sort of underlying fundamentals are a little different. And, and the fact that Medicaid is clearly in the mix in the Senate is a big difference. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. to me, the weirdest thing about the House, right, is they came up with a bill that, like, is an $800 billion Medicaid cut that violates a campaign promise from the President of the United States, that polls poorly, that pays for a tax cut for the rich. And then the whole House universe just, like, bracketed that and argued about this other half of the bill. Um, but in the Senate, we have had a lot of senators at least, like, say the word Medicaid and it's hard to know how you square that. I mean, you, you're really not repealing Obamacare if you don't undo Medicaid expansion. But if you undo Medicaid expansion, you are throwing many millions of people off their health insurance. Right. And this might be a place where I think health lobbies actually could end up being quite influential. If not the American Hospital Association, a lot of these state hospital associations in the places that have expanded Medicaid have... Um, been aggressive lobbyists on that front. And I'm sure like the Ohio um, Hospital Association is calling up Senator Portman's office and like being like very aggressive on this front. I think one of the things, you know, Medicaid is often 
you know, thought of as a less mobilized constituency because its enrollees are lower income. You know, Medicare has a lot of um, elderly enrollees, obviously, who are more likely to vote, like more likely to get involved when there's cuts. Medicaid has never had that force. But one of the things you've really seen happening with the Medicaid expansion is it has gotten hospitals on board in a new way in trying to protect Medicaid and trying to make sure that program sticks around because they are getting lots and lots of money from it. Um, one other thing I thought was interesting about this week, and there's a story our colleagues Jeff Guo and Alvin Chang worked on, was it almost felt like this vote flew under the radar a little bit? Like everyone got real jazzed around the vote in late March, the one that didn't actually happen. Um, they did an interesting analysis just looking at television coverage, and there was way, way, way more coverage in the week leading up to that vote than the week leading up to this one. Um, it, it seems like activists also got caught a little bit flat-footed that, you know, there were not, going into this vote, there were not that same kind of, like, town hall protests and, you know, freaking out. Um, it, it felt like it came together very quickly in a way that there was much less protests and pushback than there was for the first one. And, I mean, it's hard to know in retrospect, but I am curious, like, whether that gave legislators a bit more of, like, a free pass to vote in favor of it when they were, like, not hearing as much of the outcry that, like, was literally getting yelled at their faces in town halls about a month ago. Right. Well, and a lot of the kind of on-the-fence lawmakers avoided town halls. They took a recess between the end of March when the bill failed the first time and when they came back a couple weeks ago. I do wonder, too, you know, is it just a matter of fatigue? You know, we had the big run-up to the first vote, and then it failed. And then we kept hearing these rumblings and leaks over the next month that, like, we're almost there. We've almost got a deal. And, you know, every time it seemed like they came up, up short. And so, and I think even up until Wednesday, the day before the vote, most of us, and maybe that would include a lot of the liberal activists, felt confident that, yeah, they can't really pull this off. The math is too hard. But, but I, I, yeah. I would also say, I mean, my sort of media critique slash resolution, and I feel like we got into this in, in the election too, right? But is to get like too focused on like, horse racy takes about like is this really happening is this not happening while downplaying like what are the stakes here and also focusing on a, a weird thing that happened was was like they proposed a bill to take 24 million people's health insurance away and there was a lot of coverage of that and then it died down and then they proposed a change to the bill that was very superficial but there wound up being a lot of coverage of the proposed change. And then they proposed a change to the change, <laughs> which, you know, all of these things are important, right? Like Upton's $8 billion is not nothing. Um, MacArthur's change was not nothing. But each of them was like an order of magnitude less significant than what had happened earlier. But there's this monomaniacal focus on newness. So if you were like reading... The news on Tuesday, it was like all news about this $8 billion fund to possibly counteract the impact of a regulatory relaxation. And like 17 million people are going to lose Medicaid, 14 million. Mm-hmm. Right, 14. Right, like 800 total- billion will be cut from Medicaid compared right. to the 8 million right. or was, 8 was, billion on was, the high was, risk was, It was totally gone from the coverage because it wasn't like a new fact about this anymore. And, and you really saw during the election campaign, like – Donald Trump's ability to 
manipulate our sense of what was old and what was new, you know, to great, great, great effect. So that in mid-October, it was like Donald Trump tells casual acquaintances about how much he enjoys assaulting women and about how it's really easy for him to get away with assaulting women because he's so rich and famous. And then like by election day, that was like a non- story because he'd thrown like 8 million other crazy things, right? Like Kathleen Willey was here and, you know, maybe he had Nazi frogs and and like nobody knew. And and I feel like a version of that, like distraction politics was really right. at work. Someone, someone should found an explanatory journalism website to write more evergreen explainers on these topics. Yeah, But no, no, I agree. I mean, one example of that that I got caught up in was this exemption for members of Congress that I found in the bill that became this whole other thing. And one of the weird things watching, um, because they, you know, had to do an hour of debate, was a lot of Republicans giving their remarks. We're just talking about, we're going to close the loophole for Congress. And like, that was like, the defense they wanted to offer, you know, they did get into the more like focus on the healthcare ones, but that was another, you know, what looked bad for Republicans at the time that they were exempting themselves from their own bill in a weird way also became an advantage because they could talk about how they're fixing a problem. Like they have a problem in the healthcare bill. They recognize that it's a problem. They agree. Like it was for weird technical drafting reasons. Like here's a problem we're going to solve. And like, that was where a lot of like, it seemed like they were totally happy to talk about that exemption. Like once they got around to agreeing, it actually existed because it was a solvable problem for them. Unlike the millions of people losing health insurance coverage. Well, and I don't think you can underappreciate the fact that like Medicaid has always been sort of the black sheep of the American social safety net. As far as I can tell, like it never gets the same kind of coverage or is put on the same pedestal as Medicare or social security. And we could try to dissect why that might be, especially through the lens of political journalism in DC and New York based political journalism. But, you know, I think it's telling that from the start, Paul Ryan was selling this bill himself as the biggest entitlement reform in a generation. Like right. He was very proud of the Medicaid piece of this, and we've already talked about what the stakes of it would be, and yet it never became a dominant part of the conversation. And I think that's something that we have to kind of grapple with. Agreed. All right. And grapple we shall in future episodes. Um, thank you. Thank you, Dylan, for uh, uh, coming on with us and, and, and talking this over. Uh, thanks to, to our producer, Peter Leonard, for producing. Um, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Uh, we will be back uh, next week and, and possibly with more specials if more crazy, unexpected legislation uh, emerges to pass. Bye. Bye.